As a child of the 80s and 90s, Lauren Fleshman was one of the first generation of women athletes to benefit from a piece of legislation called Title IX. Signed into law in 1972, Title IX expanded on the 14th Amendment, or the Civil Rights Act. It declared that no one could be discriminated against for participating in activities that received federal funds based on sex. While the promise of equality in sports is codified into law, the reality of high-level sports for female athletes is rarely equal, even 50 years later. And Lauren Fleshman is here to tell us why. Lauren is one of the most decorated American distance runners of all time, having won five NCAA championships at Stanford and two national championships as a professional. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and Runner's World. She is the brand strategy advisor for Wazelle, a fitness apparel company for women, and she is the co-founder of Picky Bars, a natural food company. In her new book, Good for a Girl, Lauren shares an intimate look at what it took to become a champion in an industry designed and funded by men, and how she nearly destroyed her own body and career. It is so gripping that it reads like fiction. Welcome to The Planted Runner. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and my mission is to help you improve your running, your mindset, and your life with science-backed training and plant-based nutrition. In this episode, you'll learn Lauren's incredibly vulnerable true story with all the highs and lows, how Lauren stood up to Nike well before she was famous, and she'll share her best advice for those still competing today. I have to say that I think this conversation was one of the most powerful I have ever recorded, and I know you will come away from this inspired. Before we begin, I want to announce that my book, The Planted Runner, Running Your Best with Plant-Based Nutrition, is available now wherever books are sold. I include everything you need to become a better runner all in one place, fueled by plants. Order your copy today. Don't forget to stay tuned all the way to the end of the episode for another Mental Strength Minute. Fortify your mind in 60 seconds or less. And now here's my conversation with Lauren Fleshman. Welcome to The Planted Runner, Lauren. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. I'm going to try and I'm going to fail not to gush over your book. I read the whole thing this weekend. It's called Good for a Girl. But before we get into the book, I want to ask you, what's harder, writing a book or winning a national championship? (laughs) Easily writing a book. (laughs) At least a book about your life. I've heard that there are easier ways to write a book and easier um, genres. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing that struck me about the book was how vulnerable you were. You did not have to share so many super personal details. You did not have to share how much you screwed up. You know, you didn't have to share how you weren't that nice of a person sometimes. Like you didn't have to do that. Why did you feel that was so important? I think it's really important because we're all acting in our kind of we're doing the best we can with the information we have and the tools we have in the waters we're swimming in, right? And so the 
if we want to change these sports systems, which is which is the goal of writing the book, is to influence some sort of change or motivate change. It's really important to model the process of change and what it actually looks like, the mistakes that we make, um, the things that we do and believe and say when we're under one impression of how the world works. But then as we get new information, we change, um, hopefully, right? And so yeah. I wanted to show that I, I can't pretend I'm on some perch where I've always had all the information and I know what's best. And I'm just telling other people to hurry up and get there because that isn't true. It's not how it happened for me. And it's also unrealistic and it just shuts people down. Um, and I think that when you, when, it, especially when it comes to things like looking critically at how we've maybe contributed to a negative body image culture or how a coach or a parent may have accidentally harmed a child, um, a person in their care, you know, it, it's people are going to have to confront some difficult feelings um, when they have those moments of reckoning. And so I think I, my hope is that seeing me reckon makes it a little easier for someone else to do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. For for the most part, the book was kind of a love story. It was a love story about running and specifically women's running. But at the same time, it really was or is a... Um, a pretty harsh criticism of the way women are treated from high school, college, professional level running. And, um, you know, we want to think that it, things have changed. At least they have changed significantly in the past 10 years or so. But there's still a long way to go. Can you explain? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think everybody loves to talk about the benefits of sport. You know, we've, we've just passed the 50-year anniversary of Title IX, and without a doubt, I have had amazing opportunities that my mom never had. I mean, and don't even get started on grandparents, right? Like we are for sure having an enormous fulfillment of a promise that sport can bring us, but it is capable of so much more. And I want to help remove these very movable, in my opinion, barriers to the most women getting the most out of the sports experience possible. If, if these things keep coming up over and over again for 50 years and the friction points are in the same places, to me, that's actually optimistic. We're not dealing with like a nebulous monster that's impossible to figure out. Is it challenging? Yeah, but it's not impossible. Yeah. What are some of those things? What are some of those movable objects? Well, I think that one of the biggest ones, the most fundamental one is lives in all of our heads it, and it requires a fundamental shift in thinking. And that is up until very recently in history, um, at least where we live, the culture that dominates our life was built by men for like in the interest of lifting up men and boys and women had a different role in society that was kind of more, well, significantly more limited. And it's very recent history that women are entering these male-based or male-created spaces. And some we've been more successful in some spaces than others. Um, and so I think that we're at a time, a really exciting time where we have enough of us are in these spaces to go to move past the like stage of surviving in those spaces like okay what what does a female attorney need to do to survive in this male attorney culture what kind of jokes does she need to laugh at what kind of like outfits does she need to wear what sort of persona does she need to embody to survive here right we're getting to the point where once you have 40% of the total number of athletes are women now 
right? In, in the United States, at least, maybe we're at a point where we don't need to emulate the dominant culture, the historical dominant culture to, to be successful. Maybe we're at the point where we have feel we have a right to shape the spaces that we participate in to be more built for our own thriving. Um, and, and that's where, that's what I think we need to start thinking is like, we need a shift in, in moving from being afraid of our sex-based differences because difference has been used to oppress and exclude us for so much of history. We need to find safe ways to move into being able to look at um, our sex-based differences so that we can optimize the spaces around us um, right now in sport because we aren't doing that. Um, we are trying to emulate the male default model and that's kind of stupid, <laughs> especially <laughs> because, especially between ages 13 and 22, um, when your body is going on a completely different physiological trajectory than your male peers. And, um, and so like it, it the result of making invisible our different, our sex-based differences results in harm. It's not harmless. There is actual harm in ignoring the ways that we're different. I, I think people think that with Title IX, that now we're equal, right? Mm -hmm. So we should train equally. The boys and, and the girls can be separated, but we should be able to really do the same things as the boys. Just, you know, maybe our paces are different. Maybe our mileage looks different. But, um, you know, we can't actually do that. And you painted the story about your own personal story and those of the, the girls and the women that you trained with of, of why that doesn't work. Can you explain why treating boys and girls in training at that, that particular age can't be the same? Yeah, it can't be the same because our, our, what's going on under the skin is completely different. Um, at, up until age 12 and a half, there's no sex-based differences in performance between boys and girls. There's, you, you can be competitive in a female body in all kinds of events, sports, you could, you can win records, whatever. But once puberty starts and you have exposure to a different concoction of hormones and you begin to take different shapes, um, then the male-based path that sports was built around is built to optimize male puberty. You know, the, the biggest financial incentives go to who's the best at age 17 or 18 years old. That's like anybody that's had a son or watched a boy turn into a man. That's like a, a really great time to make determinations like that. If you, you know, who's going to get to go to college for free is massively consequential. Same thing with becoming a professional, a 21 or 22 year old male body is still on its upward trajectory or testosterone is an androgen exposure is, is shaping them into a particular like projected improvement curve. Right. And, and so 21, 22 is when it determines if you're going to have a pro career or not, the female body is going through something very different. Um, we, when we hit puberty, our body has these, some of our changes are not immediately beneficial to performance. It takes some time to adjust to the body composition changes, the development of breast tissue and a menstrual cycle and all these things that they're essential to our health, our function, and our long-term performance. But in the short term, they can be really disruptive and they can create like a, a period, a, a necessity for a lot of grace with ourselves and from the people around us that these kind of 
um, golden rules that you get out what you put in in sport and, uh, you know, like effort equals results. Those things aren't necessarily true for a, a 13 to 18 year old female bodied person. They can train harder and not, and not improve for a season or two. They can even sometimes get a little bit slower or, or less coordinated for a season or two. But if they can ride it out and they're met with grace and they're met with encouragement and a holistic perspective, their body tissues will adjust to this new body and their absolute strongest body is their woman body. And they just need to be allowed to get there um, and supported through that change. So how do institutions like college, like colleges or professional teams how do they do that? Because that obviously requires a longer investment. You know, if you're thinking about from a business point of view, you yeah. you want your returns to go up and up and up every single year. And we get this girl who is a, a phenom in high school and then she gets to college and then, you know, she's got a plateau for a year or two. You know, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Yeah. But like, how do coaches <laughs> and sports programs how do they invest in somebody who is plateauing? Yeah, well, you have to have a general understanding of uh, a different but equally valid way to progress. Um, it, it's only difficult for us to imagine because we're using the default progression as a norm, but it's really not. You expect like when someone is learning a musical instrument, for example, that the learning curve is steep at first and then you kind of maybe get stuck for a while and then you have these leaps again. Right. Um, but we, we have had trouble normalizing a female embodied experience. Um, we need to change the rewards and incentives for coaches though, because you can't just leave this up to the goodwill of coaches to go, Oh, well, I understand if it, I'll just like help you ride this out. Like, sure. There are people doing that, but what you need is, um, to stop creating all the incentives around winning for coaches. They're, Coaches, this is like, especially in the collegiate and high school level, it's not like high school coaches get bonuses. So let's just talk about college for a second. You, you want to create their incentives around, um, attrition rates, like are athletes staying on the team through these changes? Uh, are they, what's their kind of intake versus out? Like when they're coming in versus when they're coming out, their sense of self or confidence um, that sport should be built. That those are the things we talk about. Sport participation should be building confidence, um, you know, building like strength, like all these things. Like there are other ways to measure it besides uh, conference titles and CAA ranking. And, but those are the things coaches get incentivized towards. And then when you do that, if you have an athlete who's maybe like they've, their body composition has changed, they're going through a period of like, maybe like a little bit softer body than they had a few years ago. And that's super common in those peak fertile, early peak fertile adolescent years to carry some extra softness. But a coach will be like, Oh, I don't, I'm not patient to let you go through this period of your career. Or I don't, I've never learned the value of that, how essential and important it is for you to go through this stage of your development. What I need you to do is to make that softness go away. That the way your body looks is unacceptable. It is not what elite looks like. You need to lose some weight um, or whatever version of that that I hear about constantly from people that's happening. And, and when you're asking somebody to interfere with their natural developmental progress, you're going to get a lot worse than a plateau. You're going to get injury. You're going to get 
people being sidelined completely. And those are, you know, there's scenes in the book like that. When I make those mistakes later in my career, it's really the, the, the biggest tragedy is not even close. Like your body changed and it was a little bit harder for a year or two. That's nothing compared to missing entire seasons having to just not find out what your potential is at all because you were pressured or you added pressure on yourself to fight the the natural changes of your body. Mm, Yeah. Part of your story was in, in, and I knew your story before I read the book, but I was still rooting for young Lauren to do something different. And I was just like, you were defiant. You know, you were eating the hamburgers and the fries. Well, well, everybody else is eating salads and staring at, you know, you and what you were eating. And and you were just like, I am going to eat whatever I want. And then later on, you got sucked into it. And Mm -hmm. I was just like, no, Lauren, no, no, don't do it. (laughs) So uh, can you walk us through that? Because you knew better. You were you were studying yeah. this in college and yet you you still got sucked in. Can you walk us through that? How does that happen? Yeah. Um it's really the the culture is so strong. Like even a person like me who had a great high school coach who didn't put pressure on me um that like went into a honestly a really good college program. I mean, sure it wasn't perfect, but I've heard far worse stories. Like I yeah. would consider our environment mostly healthy and positive. Most of my teammates came away still liking to run and, and having fond memories together. Um, but yeah, the, the, there was an understanding that I brought in as a young person of like, um, I guess like self-confidence is really what it came down to. I don't need to be anyone else to be my best. I actually just need to be more me. And i like, that's what you need young people to, to believe and hold on to. How do we teach them to learn from others without trying to be others? And how do we have coaches do the same? So it, it was like, I managed to hang on to it through college. And I think that's why I was having so much success. Really. It was that doggedness, um, and be staying connected to myself but the sport world is full of things pulling us away from ourselves. The forces eventually wore me down too. It took longer because for me, it came down to economics. It was like once the financial stakes were high, once it came to like, here, you have a Nike contract. And if you're not placing X in the world within a a short amount of time, which was totally unrealistic expectations based on a male progression, again, right? Yet another industry that like copy pastes male experience and expects female bodies to do it the same way. I felt that immense pressure. If I wanted to keep doing this, if I wanted to keep this job and be able to chase these dreams, then I need to accelerate my development. I need to look at who's the best in the world right now, which was Paula Radcliffe at the time that looked like me. What does she weigh? What does, how does she train? How does she eat? And so for the first time in my career, I really get sucked out of myself into someone else's experience and make the assumption that what someone else is doing is better and makes sense for me. And then, yeah, once you kind of lose yourself, um, it can go downhill. <laughs> yeah. And, and you later found out that Paula Radcliffe didn't even weigh whatever that yeah, was. Exactly. Yeah. Like how like earth shattering was that when you, when she told you that? I mean, in a way it, it was like the best thing she possibly could have told me because 
by then it had been seven years of riding this roller coaster of like, okay, I sort of lost my way in 2004 trying to be Paula Radcliffe. I paid the price for it with an injury. And then I went through several years of sort of like finding myself, losing myself, finding myself, losing myself, right? I'm like riding this thing because that's actually more commonly how it works in life. You don't learn everything all at once and never make a mistake again. Um, that's how like recovery, sobriety, all so many things are like that. So I'm riding this thing back and forth, which I think is kind of a hard part thing to watch or to watch go down. According to people who I love that read the book, they're like, God, you were killing me for a few years there. Um, <laughs> You're okay so, now. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. But by the time 2011 rolled around, when I got to talk to Paula Radcliffe, it was like she was telling me what I knew all along, that it was, it, it's all an illusion and it was all pointless anyway. And you should have just stayed focused on yourself. And maybe six months before that, in 2010, I remember um, my father-in-law, uh, Jesse's dad, said something to me after I won a national title where he was like, man, you have so much talent and you're such a hard worker and, and it's amazing. And I'm just like, so proud that you're back on, you're, you're getting the rewards back, um, after such a tough time. And, and I said something like, yeah, it's great. And I think there's more in there. Like if I like lose a few more pounds or whatever, oh, and he was like, yeah. Lauren, what if you stopped spending time thinking about that? And just, what if you assumed that the body you have is actually the best body for the job for you? And I wanted to discount him because he's not a coach and what does he know and whatever. But it was like hearing my high school coach's voice all over again, or my dad's voice again. It was sort of like, oh, actually, this is what the truth is. There's a lot of other voices out in the world telling me something different. But the truth is actually like, uh, there's only one me. My body needs to develop the way it develops. I need to stop looking around and just look within. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's such a challenge because at high level athletics, you know, you're taught to push through pain. You are taught to be uncomfortable. It's, it's bred in you. It's genetic, but it's also part of your training to push harder and harder and do the little things, do the 1%, do all of the tiny little things. And, and pushing past hunger is, is something that is, you know, I mean, it's, it's so hard. It's such a tough subject because, you know, physics is that lighter can be faster, mm -hmm. you know, at a certain point, if, if you were, you know, at the top of your game game and you gained 20 pounds, you cannot move that body as fast. That is physics. But yeah, you know, that same mentality of doing the 1% every single day can get you in trouble. So how do we, I mean, even re recreational athletes do this too. Yeah. So how do we find that line of, of being right there, but not hurting ourselves? Yeah. Well, that's a really good question. And the thing, the important thing to remember is that we actually know very little about how the female body works with with regards to the physics you're talking about, right? Like if you look at the 1996 USA gymnastics team versus the 2021 USA gymnastics team, you look at those bodies, they're entirely different, entirely different. The bodies of 2021 that are, were outperforming the bodies of 1996, as far as technical ability and power and strength and all these things were the type of body that the coaches of the 96 team were trying to prevent them from having 
they were saying those are not the, that is not a body equal to success, right? And they were starving those athletes to the point where they were eating toothpaste to satisfy their hunger response. Turned out they didn't know. They just didn't know what a female body could look like and be maximally powerful, right? Um, and you look at tennis and Serena Williams and how many people criticized her body when she was getting started. And you hear these things like, imagine if she, she's really good. Imagine if she lost weight. Well, why is that the thing that we say? Why do we look at the best in the world and when they don't look like we expect them to, which is the most similar to a male body, we say, wow, they're pretty good for a big girl. Imagine if they lost some weight. Instead of saying, here's actual evidence that there's more body diversity than we thought that can be truly successful. I ran 15 minutes and 15.02 in the 5K, eight pounds different swing. Yeah. And you look at those simple physics formulas that I hear high schoolers repeat of like, every pound is worth six seconds in a 5K. And I'm like, no, that's so damaging. And it's incorrect, but there will be people who will show you the math. They will show you the formulas and they'll say, this is actual science. This is how it works. And I'm like, dude, you're talking about a human body. You're talking about the strength of the human spirit. You're also talking about maybe the weight and the body fat percentage that fits that formula isn't the one that optimizes um, my confidence as far as like whatever the hormonal balance that makes my endorphins work the best or my serotonin levels the best or whatever those things are that are harder to put your finger on, but are like any coach will tell you the confidence of an athlete's way more important than anything else. What training they've done, how much they weigh, whatever. Um, you can, if you're confident, you can win with a cold, you can win, you know, you can overcome incredible things. So I think there's just like a, a very unnecessarily small band that we're comparing ourselves to and using to define excellence that is like the costs of that on our daily psyche um, are massive. And when, when I learned to loosen up <laughs> and I, I developed the, this incredible gift of being able to eat like at a table with friends again and not be thinking about it, um, to, to have wiggle room, to not be like counting calories anymore, or just to, yeah, just to have ease and peace because that opens up space for so many other things in your mind. Um, that you, you know, you don't have infinite mental space or time to spend thinking about things, right? So what percentage of your time do you want to spend thinking about maximizing your body fat percentage or your race weight, right? Mm -hmm. No, that's such a great answer. And I think when you say it that way, it, it makes so much more sense because, you know, we've all been you know, hungry, hangry, you know, and, and what does that do to our mood, to our body? We're cranky. Yeah. We are more vulnerable to negative voices, you mm -hmm. know, and, and that is what it takes to win. It's, it, yeah. it, you have to shut down the negative voices when things get hard and everything's harder when you're hungry. Everything. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, just like I look at, it's, it's a total gift being a parent sometimes because we all have an inner toddler that still lives inside us, but I get to like see the, their children brains reacting to things. And when my kids get hungry, they are so emotionally fragile. Like they're so emotionally fragile. And 
they'll say things like if they make a mistake or there's a conflict and instead of just having a normal amount of feelings about the conflict, it turns into everybody hates me. You know, nobody loves me. It goes to this other level of self-worth that I'm like, whoa, how did we get here? You know, whereas like a (laughs) well-fed conflict, (laughs) you just, you have more tools. You have more tools that you, that you can reach to deal with it for your resilience. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's get into the science a little bit. So you um, have a degree from Stanford in biology and your concentration is women's health and athletic performance. Mm -hmm. So what has changed in the past 20 years and and where do we need to go? Um, Well, what's changed? I don't know everything that's changed, but it was helpful to do the research for this book because certainly there's a a uptick in the interest and research of the female athlete, but there's still a huge discrepancy in the research of um, research that includes female athletes and research that doesn't. And the default is still that we scientific papers are written that make declarations about how things work. And when you dig into the fine print, they were only done on male athletes. Um, And I re- and that that has been the same story since I was in college. I remember one of my professors saying that the reason why uh, female athletes aren't used in these studies is, and females in general are so understudied is because they have this pesky menstrual cycle. And right. when you're doing a study, you need to control as many variables as possible. Well, then they that makes it like it's a disincentive to use women because then you're like, oh, well how are we going? One of them might be ovulating. One might be menstruating. There could be like this, these waves of their stuff that could be influencing it. Well, that's exactly why we need to study women. (laughs) Because if you're saying that our cycles make us too complicated to use in the study, well, then we probably are going to be reacting differently to the stuff you're studying than male bodies. Like these differences, it's just funny to me when they're like, when we're on the one hand saying we're too different and then we're actually all the same. That's what they're yeah. saying at the same time. And I'm like, okay, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I just heard, I, I guess it's been out for a few years now, but I just heard that menstrual cramps are actually as painful as a heart attack. Did you, have you heard that? <laughs> I have. And I saw this amazing video. I can't remember what it was like a reel maybe that this um, science account, this uh, woman used where she showed if uterine cramps are strong enough to crush a soda can. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. Really? (laughs) Yeah. And then when you even just like, for me, the biggest thing that I came up against was bloating and, um, mood shifts. And so if a race fell right before my period, I was having to deal with, it's kind of like the hangry thing. I wasn't hangry, but I was dealing with the increase of self-doubt that just comes every month for me for a few days before my period. And so that was a significant additional obstacle. Plus these body changes that are mostly water, but still when the culture around you is telling you that there's such a thing as a race weight versus a weight range and that that number is critically important and you've been thinking about that number and working to get to that Mm. number like every day for a year. And then that number goes up even as little as two pounds. How do you then do the mental gymnastics of this? This number matters a lot, but oh, it doesn't matter at all. Just get out there and run. Like it's, there's, it's a trap. It's a bind for women. You should, and that's, I never talked about race weight with my athletes, my professional team for that reason. It's, there's like, there's nothing to gain. 
<laughs> from it. Right. Right. And, you know, I, I, I coach, I coach, um, athletes too, and, um, recreational athletes for the most part. And, you know, I've had people come to me and say, can you base my training off my menstrual cycle? And I'm just like, uh, I don't know how to do that. So how do yeah. we do that? Do you have any idea? <laughs> well, there's, there's a debate about whether that is the right move or not, because, mm. um, so Dr. Kirstie Elliott sale out of the UK is a, like a major voice that I respect and trust and leader in that space. Um, and she's been, she's been really hesitant to embrace, uh, or support the, these, um, apps that are, that provide, um, menstruation based training because it's extremely individual what people experience and it would be just as stupid to base everyone on a team's training around one type of menstrual cycle experience than it is to base nobody's training on any menstrual cycle experience. And so it, right. she has said, and I may be misquoting it, but the general idea that I've picked up from Dr. Kirstie Elliott sales work is the best tool you can do is teach people how to tune into their own cycle and what adjustments they should make like give them a few options, like if X, then Y, if Y, then Z so that they can go, okay, if I'm really below, it's okay to move a workout. Um, yes. it's okay to, uh, like I'm going to be hungrier. I'm going to have like a lot of sugar cravings and those actually make me feel more bloated and more inflamed when I'm training. So learning, like I don't, I, I've never had those kind of cravings, but I know some people do. So just teaching them how to work with their own cycle. And then I don't believe in writing an entire trainings. I never did it, but it also could be that it's just too hard. But yeah, I definitely had yeah. some athletes that I knew, like when they were premenstrual, it was not the time to give them a really hard session and I just wouldn't. And then other athletes, it was totally fine. So I would do it. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see, they've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo jo, Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network. I'll get back to the conversation in just a minute, but I quickly wanted to invite you to run with me in my beautiful hometown this fall. On September 14th through 17th, 2023, I will be hosting a four-day running retreat in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Asheville, North Carolina. We will be staying in luxury cabins right on the French Broad River, where we can run right out the door. You'll get run coaching, strength training classes, guest lectures, and more. And of course, it will feature amazing plant-based food and a little nightlife as well. I've led many of these retreats over the years, and I'm so excited to be hosting this one in my backyard. Spaces are very limited and it's first come first serve. So sign up today at theplantedrunner.com slash retreat. I'll be offering early bird pricing until March 1st, 2023. So be sure to take advantage of that as soon as you can. I can't wait to run with you this September. Thanks. 
hopefully we are starting to see more uh, elite athletes talk about this. Um, there was I, that one swimmer, I think she was Chinese, who, you know, won her event and, and she was like, this is amazing. And I'm on my period. And everyone's just like, oh, she just said that, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, at least, at least we're talking about it more. I think that it's, you know, hopefully not such a taboo, the thing that every woman goes through, <laughs> you right? know? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And that is a way um, back to your question of what has changed. That has certainly changed. I think that there's, um, there's, a lot that's changed as far as like women reclaiming their body functions, their essential functions and taking them out of the shadows and talking about them and also having the courage to ask sport to change. Um, when you think about Simone Biles withdrawing mm -hmm. from an event at the Olympics because her head was, she, she knew her head wasn't in the game in a way that would be able to keep her safe <clears throat> in a highly dangerous event. Um, and she, Pulled herself out. She made that decision and that enraged a lot of people that that is not a part of the inherited dominant sport culture that we have walked into. But, and so the initial reaction to that was negative. Like who right. does she think she is? And then the next question, we needed to be doing this all the time in women's sports though, because what, it, what the norm is, isn't necessarily the best for men either. It was the thing yeah. that was made a long time ago by men for men and boys, but like we know more now. And I think when you have someone like Simone who does that, it, then this, like after the initial wave of rejection comes the thoughtful commentary of, Hey, athletes should feel like they have agency. Um, they should like mental health should receive as much, uh, importance as like an Achilles rupture or something like that. And the athlete knows their body best and the, you can't outsource the, that kind of important knowledge to a coach, um, which is what was expected of athletes in the past that you, you don't decide when you're injured coach does those days are over. Right. Right. Yeah. And Carrie Strug doing the vault with a broken ankle, you know, yeah. that's what we want to see though. That, that is, you know, exalted as the ultimate level of sport to push through pain and to absolutely be a robot. I mean, we might as well just have robots out there, you know, if we're, <laughs> true. If, if we're gonna, if we're gonna treat people athletes as if they are simply performers. Yeah. And I think that the thing is like, we don't really know what was going on in Carrie Strug's mind, right? Like Carrie Strug might not even really know because she was a teenager. Um, and so she may or may not even be a reliable narrator um, when you're indoctrinated in a system. But I do believe that it should, that it's okay if somebody wants to make an individual decision to run on an injury or to compete when they're sick or whatever it is, those carry Strug type moments of pushing through and triumph. But we can't, we can't make space for those moments to happen if we can't trust athletes truly have agency and that they, and they're making those decisions for themselves. And they're not making them out of fear that they'll be kicked off a team. They're not making them, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, it, because I, I, like, I'm not a, such a stickler that one must preserve the temple at all costs and never ever like yeah. suffer a temporary boo-boo for the sake of like a bigger dream. Um, like I, I do believe that it, that can be part of sports, uh, but those are individual calls. Yeah. 
I'd love to get back into um, the running culture for women. And and mm-hmm. to be fair, this is actually for men too. Men go through eating disorders in the running world and other sports. Your husband, Jesse, is a notable example yeah. of that. So this is not just about young women, but it seems to be more pervasive with women. Maybe, maybe the guys aren't talking about it as much. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, part of race weight, quote unquote, is not just running fast, but it's wearing the kit, you know, wearing the short shorts, wearing the tiny sports bra. It's looking like an elite athlete when you're on the line, you know? So part of me, I have two feelings about this. Part of me, if you're at that level and you're proud of your body and you are happy at what you have built, you know, what's wrong with showing off the physique that you work so hard to achieve. But then the other part of me is like, wait a second, are these really the most aerodynamic shorts? Is that why we're wearing these? Is it for drag or, you know, and you definitely have a lot of opinions on that. And I want to point out the Nike objectify me campaign that you did. And hopefully we'll put a picture up of what that was if if people don't remember it or who have never seen it before. And it was a picture of you and you are just defiant looking at the camera. And you're not wearing the little bun huggers. You're wearing regular training shorts. I would love for you to talk about that episode and and why it's why it was important that you did that. Um yeah, I think that the like like we've talked it kind of comes back to agency. I think that a lot of things um with women we we may think we know why we're doing the things we do, but it's important to be humble that we're marinating in a culture full of forces that it it would be, it would, it takes a while to figure out what is shaping your opinions and your thoughts, right? Like examining the high heels. Do you really love high heels? How much of is it that you love high heels and how much is of it is that high heels are a symbol for something or it, Um, elicit a reaction that you desire that creates a feeling that you want. And why is that item related to approval and the feeling that you want? Who decided that? And, and what really happens to your back in high heels over time and your bunions? And do I still at this point, now that I've really thought about all the issues around it, shaping the decision, do I really want to wear them? The answer still might be yes. And good for you. Wear the shoes. Like that's great. But I, I'm a big fan of taking the time to understand why we're doing what we do, because if we kind of all can do that, we will be using our agency and freedom and we can respect other people's choices. And there'll be less of the part you mentioned of like, this is what elite looks like. Elite will look like a lot of different things if people are making their decisions from a point of agency. And so in the um, Objectify Me ad, that was like the kind of the first time in my life that I was really questioning the need to be exposing my skin in a way that's attractive to the male gaze. Um, the initial advertisement pitch was a picture of, was going to be a picture of me naked, um, to quote, tastefully done. And, and as people know, so often in our culture, the sign of really making it as a female athlete is being in Playboy or the ESPN body issue or depicted in lingerie or some sort of gown, like refeminizing you, um, Mm. for, to kind of assure people that you're still feminine. Um, and so I think I was becoming aware of more of those things. And I, I also saw that 
when the only definition of elite is I have achieved a body that is worthy of being looked at naked or, or nearly naked, then a young person coming up in the sport, it continues that cycle of, well, what does success look like? Success looks like having a body that people want to put on a poster naked. Um, so, but what does success really look like? Oh my God, there's like 150 other things to focus on. That one, the way your body looks is the one most supported by societal forces. And so you're going to be most likely to spend most of your time on that one at the expense of all the other ones. And when you're doing that, if there's also this hidden cost of reds, losing your period, increased risk of stress fractures, all these other things, you're going for the body that looks professional and actually preventing yourself from ever becoming elite. It's like, it's a trap. So I think I just said, it took some courage to come back to the Nike people and say, Hey, I don't want to do a naked ad. Cause I wasn't a Serena Williams level person that could, could feel like I have confidence and say, Hey, I'm the best in the world. If you want me in your ad, you're going to do it my way. It was very much more like, <laughs> Oh wow, this is my big break. If I get in this ad, people might, other people might learn who I even am. What a huge opportunity. I should just shut my mouth and do whatever they say. Um, but the thought of having a poster of me on girls' walls that furthered a cycle that I that I knew for sure by that age was at increasing risk of eating disorders, um, creating all this mental static in my teammates' minds and my competitors' minds. I just couldn't do it. Like I came to the point where I was mm. like, I'd rather them say, no, you can't do, we'll pick someone else. Um, so yeah, I think I was really proud of it. I thought it was good it embodies some different qualities that I think are more universal. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's iconic. So I'm, I'm glad that you stuck to your guns. This must be so hard. You're in your young twenties and you're just like, you know, like you said, just please invite me to the table. I'll do whatever you yeah. want. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, you see that at, at anything, you know, young musicians who, uh, you know, want to have to play for free because yep. it's their big break. You know, mm -hmm. young people are, you know, uh, put into these situations and your brain is not fully formed yet. And you end up doing things you don't necessarily, your older self maybe would not approve of. So, yeah. I, you know, it's hard. It is hard. And it's, yeah, it is tough. And I just like, I also was never, I was never, I was always kind of more of a tomboy growing up. So I think that that drove me to see some of these forces at play a little bit quicker than I would have otherwise if I was more of like a femme type person. Um, but yeah, it was like, it was kind of even just like, well, that's not even me. Like that isn't something that I naturally would want to do um, or someone yeah. might. Uh, and then just one more thing about the outfit, like the idea, yeah. I, I loved what you said about when you, you want to, these are this elite kit um, is part of the symbol. And I love the idea of like these little bun huggers It's basically these little bathing suit bottoms and thinking like, if these truly were faster, men would wear them. They would. Yeah. Men are fiercely competitive. They would be wearing bun huggers in their races and they're not. So 
There you go. (laughs) And why do they even wear shirts? Because, you know, the shirts chafe their nipples. So they really should be just in there in bun huggers and no shirt if we're we're trying to be equal, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. If it's truly about equality, that's what we would do. You know, I I spoke with um, Emily Cole recently. She's a D1 athlete at Duke University, Mm -hmm. and she talked about her story. She has written a book. Um, You know, she had struggles with her nutrition and um, probably a little bit of orthorexia, you know, eating too healthy, um, which landed her in some trouble. and, And she is seemingly all right now. But you know, that was when young Lauren was was going down a, a hard path, too. So, you know, what advice would you have for someone like her? I think that really it's difficult because, well, at that stage, I wouldn't have listened to anybody that wasn't that hadn't bitten in the arena. Right. Like I was so skeptical of doctor's advice, other people's advice, anyone that didn't agree I was kind of like, "Mm, you just don't really know what it takes. Um, That's how deep the culture is. And that's also what disordered eating, like when the disease begins to work its way in, I mean, that's what it does. But there, I I try to sell people on the pluses of, of the freedom that like the things we were talking about earlier, what happens when you free up mental space? Like, first of all, like really going to the physiology of you can have a wider weight range you can consider the fact that you may actually perform better with a little bit more softness um, where you just don't have to be quite so on the edge. Mm-hmm. Like really, truly consider that because it very much can be true. <laughs> um, and then, and then like, think about what, what possibilities exist when you don't have stress, when you're cooking and eating, when you, can feel like, where are the spaces that can be filled with confidence, with love, with joy, with ease, and then how much better will you compete from that space? Um, Orthorexia is a tricky one because it's like, it's, it's perfectionism, which is, um, which is heralded and, um, advantageous in certain ways in sport. And then, you know, you're, it's a, you're learning over time in which categories is this helping me? And in which categories is this harming me and food? Like if someone tells you sweets are bad, then it's, it's difficult to go to that headspace of nuance of like, well, if sweets are bad, why would some of them be good at all? You should have none of them. Mm -hmm. Right. Like why is there a place for some of anything that's not optimal if you're trying to optimize yourself? And yeah, that's, that is, like where you have to kind of say, not like releasing the grip, that is no way to live, to be in a, like a tight gripped space is harming you. Um, Yeah. Cause that's when you break, when you're, Mm -hmm. when you're that gripped, that's when you break. So slightly on a tangent here, she's Mm -hmm. written a book and because the whole name image and likeness ruling allows college athletes to be able to profit for the first time. I'm just curious what you yeah. think about that and what you would have done if that was the case <laughs> when you were in college. Oh gosh, I don't know. I'm glad it wasn't the case when I was in college, but I'm also oh, glad. Really? I do believe that economically it makes no sense for the NCAA to make all the money on athletes and force them into amateur status. Like from a philosophical perspective, I agree with the idea of name, image, and likeness, but 
it's a, it's a dangerous tool. You know, it's like, it's like giving a toddler, a container of spray paint. It's like (laughs) you, (laughs) this culture is, is messed up when, especially when it comes to the objectification of women and the strength Mm -hmm. of the male gaze in shaping how we move through the world. Like in a female body, you are, you learn early to see yourself always with this double gaze, how you view your experience and how he or him or person in power views what you're doing. And that, I mean, you think about how powerful that is in shaping Mm -hmm. your life. Um, and that, that is the name image and likeness thing is like the, the fact is the majority of companies with at an executive level, the people making decisions are men. The male gaze is still the most powerful um, tool in determining who's valuable and who's not. And sexualization of the female athlete is still the most, uh, I guess, like highly sought after thing an athlete can offer. And we already know that the athletes getting the most money are the ones deemed conventionally attractive to the cisgender, heterosexual, white male gaze. And then if you're only 18 and you have money on the line now to be presenting a particular way on your social media, I mean, living your life to present to others is exhausting and you get one life. And do you want to spend it living, presenting to other people? I mean, when you go back at 30 and you look at your Instagram feed, if it exists anymore from your twenties and your pictures are all curated for your name, image, likeness sponsors, and you're having to like femme yourself out to do it. It's, I don't know. I think it adds a lot of pressure. I think it is, is probably contributing to the mental health crisis in athletes and the disproportionate amount of girls that are dealing with that, but I don't know what you do about it. You can't like make companies value other qualities. Right. I, it's, that's a super tough, um, thing to think about because yeah, you know, obviously an athlete should have agency, should be Mm -hmm. able to profit off of their own accomplishments. But you know, what do you do when you're so young and, you know, think that you know everything because at 18, you know everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you're ripe for people to take advantage of you, you know? Yeah. And you get paid and your teammate doesn't, who's maybe even yeah. a little better than you, but they're not, quote, hot, according to mm. whatever Adidas thinks or whatever. I mean, yeah. I don't know. It's just like it adds this whole other element of it's just kind of gross. Um, and of course, like attractiveness impacts marketability in male athletes too, but you don't have to look far in the marketing of men to see that like plenty of not hot guys get paid lots of money (laughs) and men will pick, like, they'll take a quality of an athlete, like, um, being, I don't know, uh, surly on the tennis court and Mm. they'll, turn that into like a, a re like a marketable trait. Um, and then what, whoever, whoever is celebrated helps define what's attractive. It's not, mm-hmm. So if you celebrate a wider variety of bodies and appearances, it, it just expands the view of what's attractive. Yeah. And we just aren't getting those same opportunities in women's sports to do that through marketing. 
Yeah, it's well, hopefully things are changing. And, you know, I think talking about it openly is the first place to start. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, So why should men read Good for a Girl? Oh, so many reasons. Um, Well, there's going to be some similarities. I think that um, there the changes that a female athlete would want for the sport, a lot of them would benefit men too. When you think about something like parental leave was driven by the female bodied need to take parental leave, but then those rights have been expanded to men um, in a lot of industries, not globally, uh, everywhere, but certainly like they now have in like structural support to bond with their infants that they wouldn't have had if women hadn't had this biological need that drove change. And so I think similarly, like all the stats, there's multiple times in the book where I mentioned the stats for, let's say, risk of bulimia, anorexia for female athletes, and then also list the stats for males. And I think that like, it's clear males are suffering too. This system isn't, isn't just like working supremely well for them. And um, they could ride on the the coattails of some of these changes. And, and honestly, they, they should be pushing for them. They should be pushing for them as allies to their female athlete peers um, because it, their female peers are hurting. And, um, and that we like, it's not just their job. It's not just women's job to fix this. Right. So um, we all have to advocate for each other. And I think that runners are awesome at doing that. They're awesome at showing up for each other of viewing us as like one community. So I think that it will be really insightful. I think it also for men will um, help them understand ways that they may have inadvertently perpetuated harm. And it will do that for women too. I certainly (laughs) know it does that. So it will help kind of illuminate some things and they may not agree. And, you know, nobody has to agree with everything in the book. Like people can take what they want and leave what they want, but there will undoubtedly be moments where they go, Oh, okay. Like, I'm glad I know this now. And I won't do that again. Um, Mm -hmm. especially male coaches and like parents of girls. For sure. Yes. Yes. So speaking of parenthood, you have two kids. How do you imagine you'll support your own two kids if they decide to go the athletic route? Oh, yeah. Um, Gosh, it's funny. I I feel like already in kids soccer, Jesse and I are like the most chill parents on the sideline (laughs) because it's fourth grade soccer, but people can already get so intense. And um, I think that like, I, I think that because we've both been there and we've done it, we know how much is actually just up to the athlete. The athlete has to be the one that drives it. They have to care. Um, and that most pe- most kids will not be extraordinary. They will be average. And that is what you should plan for versus yeah. pushing for extraordinary. Um, because in the end, you can't push them to any lasting extraordinariness. Anyway, as soon as they leave your house, it's going to be up to them. Um, and they'll have to be the determinant of their own thing. And Jesse and I were very independent. I mean, we did not have pushy parents. You can read about my dad in the book. He certainly was invested and influential to me and I wanted his approval and praise, but I 
like I very much chose the sport I did and it, it felt like my world, my career. Um, and I appreciate that I had that. So I want to give that to my kids. I plan to just give them exposure to different things and see what they like. And then spend most of my energy encouraging the best things sport have to offer, like, um, compassion and empathy and sportsmanship and skill building and, um, confidence and fun and the athletic journey and drama and all those things. Like that is what I want to kind of like, I want to be on an athletic journey with them that doesn't have a predetermined destination. I love that. Fun is so underrated when it's at the highest levels. You think of just such seriousness and perfection and what about fun? So I love that you brought that up too. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, I think that is a perfect place to wrap this up, Lauren. So where can uh, listeners connect with you? Um, well, my website is laurenfleshman.com, but the best place to find me is Fleshman Flyer on Instagram or Lauren Fleshman on Twitter. And, um, my book can be found anywhere books are sold on January 10th and beyond. And, uh, yeah, I think I'll be putting out some things in the future about potential virtual events, um, talks, but I'd love to find a way to engage with high school teams, youth teams, college teams, that is sustainable for me living in Bend, Oregon and, um, for, for people that do want to connect. So uh, I think we'll just have to stay tuned on that, but thank you for having me on this podcast. Great questions and insights and really appreciate the time. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lauren, for coming. I have been a big fan for a long time. So this was really special for me too. And I really hope you can continue your advocacy work in this space because there's a lot that can change. And, you know, with somebody coming from your level, I think you have a powerful voice that more people need to hear. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. And now it's time for the Mental Strength Minute. Fortify your mind in 60 seconds or less. Today's topic is the body scan. This is a classic mental strength technique that runners can use to not only distract you from negative thoughts, but to actually do something that can help you in the moment. You want to mentally scan your body, imagining perfect running form, and then putting it into practice. Start at the top of your head and make sure your eyes are looking straight ahead, not down. Moving to your shoulders, let them relax and let go of any tension. Your spine should be tall to allow your chest to inhale as much oxygen as possible. Your fingers should be held lightly with your elbows driving straight back. Your knees float forward as if they've been sprung by a slingshot by your powerful legs. Even your big toe helps you accelerate forward. Use the body scan for as long as you can keep focus on it, which should be enough to get you out of that rough spot. Thank you so much for listening to the Planted Runner podcast or watching it on YouTube. As silly as it might sound, the ability for me to make this show absolutely depends on the amount of listens, downloads, reviews on Apple Podcasts, and ratings on Spotify. So if you've already reviewed, thank you. If not, please take a moment after your run today to give it five stars. Have a great run today. Women's Running Stories, where we explore the intersection between running and life.
Because every woman who is committed to a running journey has a story to tell, and this is where you'll find those stories. I am host and producer Cherie Louise Turner. I'm a 53-year-old runner, and together with original music by musician and runner Cormac O'Regan, we bring these inspirational stories to life. Please join us to fuel your adventures.